I'm Jahan Sharif, and welcome to another episode of Jaja. Since Trump announced his candidacy for president, immigration has been front and center in the national conversation. Last week, he announced that ICE would round up and deport 2,000 people in 10 cities across the country. Uh, it starts, you know, during the course of this next week, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. And again, everybody that came into the country illegally will be brought out of the country very legally. As expected, this action sparked universal condemnation from Democrats. Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking at an event. When I saw that the president was going to have these raids, I mean, it was so appalling. It's outside the circle of civilized human behavior to just be kicking down doors, splitting up families. Now, even though President Trump did back down at the last minute, I'm still very curious as to what all of this looks like from the perspective of the undocumented person. My guest today is Larry Campbell. He's the founder of Corners Outreach, a nonprofit organization bringing education and jobs to these affected communities in Gwinnett County near Atlanta. Many of his families are undocumented, and he's been living his life alongside theirs every day for more than five years. Originally, we had planned to have someone who is undocumented share their story directly with you. But out of caution for their safety, we decided that for now, Larry would speak on their behalf. This is part one of a two-part series. So what is life like for the average person that you work with uh, while all of this is going on? I mean, you know, this is the thing that I'm at their house and someone knocks on the door and everybody begins to scream. And it's just a neighbor. Wow. You know, or the phone rings and it's, un, un, you know, like a non-ID caller. Who could that be? What are they doing? Or they get a letter from, um, you know, immigration. I mean, so it's a constant, you know, almost like every moment wondering what's going to happen. Or if dad's late, you know, in Atlanta, we have a lot of traffic, so it's not unusual for dad to be late from work. But if dad's, you know, late for dinner, did he get picked up? And so the constant, the way they live their life is waiting for bad things to happen. And, you know, I, I can't even imagine... I'm, I'm living in their life, but I'm not personally threatened, and I'm not the one that's there, but watching the fear and just, you know, the pure tears on a regular basis, and then it's like, oh, it's okay. Or dad will call and say, hey, I had my truck broke down. I'm okay. You know, or I had a wreck, or I got stopped by, you know, we had a, you know, I got stopped for a speeding ticket. Well, if it's you get stopped for a speeding ticket. Will that lead to deportation? Lead to ICE picking you up, putting you in detention? Now we have no money, and so we have families where dads put in detention. Dad's the only one working, so now we have moms and children that have no social programs, so they can't rely on the government. They have no money for income, and so we're now trying to figure out how do we keep them, how do we keep them fluid, you know, being fed. Yeah. you know, going to school. So it, I think that's the thing that we tend to, we tend to gloss over that it's unfortunate to me a little bit of even like Trump's message last week, president Trump's message last week of deportations. When you cry out, you're going to do 10,000, 2000 deportations. And you're going to target 10 cities, the fear factor in every one of those folks. And they have to tell their kids because their kids have to be aware of what's happening. So it's one thing as adults, if we deal with fear, but it's nothing when we bring fear down to seven-year-olds, and that's literally happening every day in Atlanta. What is a typical family that you work with? What do they look like? 
Yeah, most of our families are, the use of the correct term is nuclear. Most of them are mom, dad, and kids. Dad out working, mom staying at home. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if you know, we've never talked much about living wage calculations from MIT, but the living wage calculation for Gwinnett County, if, if mom and dad and three kids, dad working, mom not working, the living wage is $25 an hour. But as you might guess, you know, our families are living at half of that. I mean, our families are lucky to make $12 an hour. Well, when you don't make half of the living wage, you try to make it up on volume. And so now you move from working 40 hours to working 70 hours. So you want to take in a day job. They don't give them that job can't expand because nobody wants to pay overtime. So they take a night job making less money, but something to bring money and then they take a weekend job. So our dads are working three jobs and then still can't get it. So they're living multifamily dwellings. We always say, why do they live together? They live together because they can't afford to live apart because housing burden is so great. Now, to their tri- to their you know true tribute, and this is why they're my heroes. They're working all those hours, and they're generally not complaining. So they're not they're not mad. They're just scared. And I think that's really important because if you put me in that situation, I probably would be mad. That speaks volumes for how bad it is in their country. Yeah, that's exactly and what I was going to say. Can where do where do a lot of these people come from, and what is it like? where they come from, where this type of situation that you describe is better than what they left. Yeah, I think that's a struggle that we tend to look at our country as we as tourists. Like, we'll think of someplace in Mexico, and it'll be, oh, you know, that's really beautiful there. That's not where they're living. The same way in uh, a lot of our families are from Central America. Now, we have more families now from South America, from Venezuela and Colombia, the issues there. But a lot of families from Honduras and El Salvador, they're dealing with gang and so if you have gangs that are basically holding you hostage or asking for protection money, even those who are working are giving up money to do that. So they're fleeing something that's awful. What we look at they have today is awful, but it's better than what they, what they left. How did you come to be involved with this work? I believe that good consulting, which is what I ran as a consulting practice, you go and ask people where their greatest headache is. And whether that's the chairman of a large company or the principal of a school, so I went to the school principal and said, what's your greatest headache? And she said, I have a trailer park, and those kids are not able to learn. Can you do something about that? And so I did. I went there, and I did what we did at home. We put a snack table, and we started doing homework with the kids. We did because I believe strongly in analytics and measurements. We put them into the analytic group and measured their academic success. And in a year, they'd gone up over 50% in math. And these so were, that let me live life. These are the elementary these are school undocumented kids, children, or these are they're they're all they're all Latino children. Okay. At that time period, I don't know much about undocumented documented. They're Latino children not doing well in school. Uh huh. Got you. And so as I began to spend time with them, I used the corny expression, which you've been around me now. You know, I'm kind of corny, but <laughs> it was like, let's walk out life together. Why don't you share your life with me, and I'll share my life with you. And so that's what we just began to do. We we would share life together. So I thought that meant I'd take you to a doctor, take you to the grocery store. My wife would clip coupons with you, or we would take your, your you and your student to a parent-teacher meetings or the PTA. As I began to walk out life with them, two great things began to be noticed. One, the whole immigration thing, the fact that they were going, they were having to leave and get downtown, but they couldn't drive. They had to go downtown Atlanta to, to do check-ins. I didn't know what check-ins were. And so because I said I walked out life with you and because they couldn't drive, they said, well, could you help me get downtown? So I was like, not only will I help you, I'll go with you. 
And so I would go down to their check-ins and set in those things and watch immigration and then ask questions. And then when I went to the lawyer, I'd go to the lawyer with him and I'd ask the lawyer questions. And so in my curiosity, my mind, but my interest in sharing with my families, I just began to live life with them. And I was able to see up front what they were experiencing. And you begin to see the injustice and you begin to dig further into why is this existing and as you begin to do that, and we started out dealing with maybe 100 kids, and before long we're dealing with 500 kids, and we saw the stories repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. So then you begin to have a feel for the injustice that exists in that situation. I'm kind of getting the impression that this is a cumulative sort of compounding effect where your eyes over time uh, and you know, was, were opened. At what point did you feel like you needed to take an action beyond uh, just walking through life with with them at what point where you said you know i need to do more well i think i think that's really good so let me just describe a couple of very specific answers so in 2014 i began to help a, a mom who had left her and her husband had left to go back to honduras to, to basically rescue their children whose uh, her previous i guess her previous husband and the one of the child's father had been killed by gangs so they'd left uh, to go just live there and yet when they got there, so many things happened. He got arrested. He got held hostage. Uh, drugs and gangs and all of them tried to get after them. So the Honduran consulate advised them to leave. So they said, well, can you help us leave? And they said no. So they were left with a family. You know, they're, they're basically dividing themselves up into smaller groups to try to get across the, the border. And so we got dad, we got mom, and an and a eight-year-old girl, and we got two unaccompanied minors. And so that family came back into America, they all got caught. And then she did what a lot of people do. They hired lawyers who were bilingual, but you know the lawyers were not really ever representing them. So I began to just walk out life very detailed with that family and watch the legal bills and watch the misrepresentation. And so as that began to occur, like I would go to them and they would sit in a meeting with the lawyer and never ask a question. I was like, well, ask a question and ask him a question and no and then so I would ask a question, like, can I ask this? And then he would give me answers. And that, of course, as a business person, you're used to dealing with lawyers and, and law. And so you're asking more questions. And what you find is the immigration lawyers were taking their money and then just filling out forms. And all the, all the while, the courts are moving toward deportation. By this point, Larry had become very close with this family and had worked in the legal system with them. But next, we'll hear the story of when he experienced ICE firsthand for the first time. And while I have your attention, I want to remind you that all of this is made possible because of generous donations from listeners like you. So if you like what you hear and would like to support more of this work, head over to jahansharif.com to make a donation. Also, if you want to learn more about Larry and Corners, visit cornersoutreach.org. And now... Back to Larry. I was there when the unaccompanied minors got picked up by, by ICE on the way to high school and, you know, was very closely experiencing seeing a child picked up by ICE with six officers, you know, taken away from her aunt mm-hmm. and watched the trauma of that and, and then being back at the centers. And then she spent 13 weeks in the detention center and really was pressured all, often to just self-deport. How did you find out that she had been picked up by ICE? In that particular case, her aunt um, came back home and told the mom, and the mom called me. And because of my connections in Atlanta with immigration, I began to call some of the officers there. 
and it took about three hours for me to find out uh, where she was being held. Did her uh, aunt and mother? Her. Did her aunt and mother know anything about where she was being held until you found out? No. So they no, hadn't and, told her. They hadn't told her anything. No, that no reporting. And in fact, what I would say too, in a bigger scope, is most of the time when someone's picked up by ICE, there's a period of time where they're just lost in the system. I've gone directly to Homeland Security, and they say that everyone is known within 24 hours. But I've had folks missing for 72 hours. Mm. And no one knows where they are. And so but from the family perspective, they think have they already been deported. Mm. It then, can happen then, that you know, fast. Slowly, yes. I mean, there are people who are picked up and almost immediately deported. And then we have other stories where people are picked up and then just missing. That's a very, very scary time period because you don't really know. And that happens on a very regular basis where someone's just missing and the family's looking for them. So fortunately, you were able to find uh, this this person. And so tell me the story about when you went down to, to meet her. Was she at the detention center at this point, or was she at a, a local jail? Yeah, she's, she's being held in a local jail uh, before she's uh, transported to the detention center. And so when we, met, we, we got there, we met with a supervisor. I, I took her mom with me. And in that situation, the supervisor brought out her book bag. She said, you know, she doesn't need that anymore. And I said, well, you know, she wants to go back to school. She keeps her books. It's like she ain't never going back to school. It was that kind of slang expression mm. and, you know, gave the book bag back. And <clears throat> we talked to her multiple times about letting her mom see her. And she said no. Um, you know, she didn't want she didn't want to go through the emotional experience. Not the mom. The officer didn't. Wait, with the I'm daughter. sorry. Let me just stop. The officer said <laughs> the officer told you and her mom that she didn't want to let her mom see her daughter because she, the officer, didn't want to go through the emotional experience of watching the two of them together. Did that's, I hear that right? That's exactly correct. Yep, that's exactly correct. Because I, I kept saying, you know, we will keep it short, but just let them see each other for a few moments. Let them see each other, make sure they're OK. And she said, no, it's too hard on me. Not it's too hard on the mom and the daughter. It's too hard on me. Mm. Okay, that's peculiar, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, and I've got to know the officer through my many years, and her and I have battled on, on multiple things, but <clears throat> it's a perfect example of the control aspect. So then, you know, she, we're, we're, well, no, we finally go back home. We wait to determine what center she's at, so she has to get into the system. That's about 72 hours. And so in that 72-hour gap, nothing's, we don't know anything. And then she finally appears in the system, and she's in a detention center about 280 miles from Atlanta. Mm. Now, I'd like to kind of walk through how the detention center is and yeah. describe the environment, yes, because please. I think it's very different than most people. And just so you're clear, in, in doing community work, I've been to uh, high-security prisons to visit inmates. And mm -hmm. so for me, it's an interesting comparison of going and seeing someone who's a high-security risk and be able to sit in the cafeteria with them across from the table versus going to detention. And the detention centers, they get one hour of visits per week for the in for the detainee. So not an hour per person, but for the detainee only gets one hour a week. And so that generally is scheduled. You have to make an appointment and you have your appointment and, and they'll let you come for an hour. So I'm driving the mom and family members to the detention center to see their daughter we have one hour. We walk in, sign in. Um, we go, and we're in a little room, and we're visiting with her behind glass door through a glass window 
talking on the telephone. So there's no touching. There's no, you don't see them directly. And you're trying to listen through a, like a payphone to talk to them. And it's a very, very difficult environment. The, the first time she came out, she was in chains. So they had her clad with, wow. you know, ankle chains, you know, chains on her uh, waist. How, how tall is she? How much does she weigh? Yeah, she, she <laughs> might weigh, uh, I mean, literally 90 pounds. She's very petite. Um, when she came to court later on, when we finally got to court, they brought her to court in the same way in chains. So we have all the church members and other members of her family. And it's very devastating to see your daughter in chains. In and all she was doing like was she was in the car. Why did she get pulled over? They basically, they flagged, yeah, they flagged her name during the Atlanta raids and mm. they flagged her name and she just got picked up through that process. So they'd been, gotcha. uh, I suppose, watching her. So let me ask you, what happened, this is one hour a week that you get to interact with her. What happens for the other hundred something hours that pass during the week? What is, what is her experience like when you're not there? In every one of those days, there the the detention center leaders are trying to get her self deport, and you know she's 300 miles away from home, and she can have one hour of visitation a week. And when you say and they're so trying to the, get her to self deport, is she being yeah. interrogated like what we see on TV, or is it a? She's being coerced, uh, sometimes without water or food, sometimes saying, "I know you want to go, wouldn't it be better?" Sometimes the you know brainwashing, it's better there. You can choose when you want to go versus this. And so she's leaning on me, you know, so we're, we're setting up credit card calling, which is, you know, astronomically expensive. So she's calling her family and then calling me and saying, I'm ready to give up. And I'm like, let's just wait one more day. How did you manage to convince her to give it one more day? Well, what I did was because I'm close to her, I reminded her what life was like in Honduras. And, and I would say, do you want that? And she's like, no, I don't want that. I'll probably be killed, but I don't want to be in detention either. And so that's what we would go through and talk about. Okay. What are we doing with the lawyers? Uh, I hired a lawyer out of Denver, Colorado, because I couldn't file a lawyer in Atlanta that I had confidence in and paid the expense to have that lawyer come in because they're one of the best. And so then I would have that lawyer, you know, get on the phone with her and try to give her hope. And, you know, we did get her out she did graduate high school. Her case is still pending. So that's the crazy thing is all of this time she could have been in detention, and that's what's happening today. Mm. If it weren't for your your intervening actions, how much, if you if you mind me asking, how much did it cost you? Probably fifty five thousand dollars so far. Wow, and this is <laughs> this is one person. Yeah. Yes, yes. And yes. are you doing this for other people? Yes trying to, uh, as much as I can, uh, I'm trying to lean on people to do some stuff pro bono, but, you know, trying to, you know, because ultimately I feel like if I have the ability, then I have the responsibility. And I've been fortunate to, as a spokesperson that other people have stepped in and given me money. So it's not all on me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that we're just trying to say, what's the fairness in this? Because in their situation, they get no help. And so unless we help them, they're more likely to be deported. And because her dad was killed and because I could see a life for her with gangs, me and others decided that it was worthwhile to give her a different life. And now I'm working on trying to get her into college. So until the government deports her, I'm going to continue to, to preach what we've always done. Hey, let's get to school. Let's do education. Let's prepare for a life that winds up being in Honduras. 
it, that I can't control that, but let's be prepared for life. Next week, we'll hear what Larry is doing himself through corners to make a difference and what we can all do to fight injustice when we encounter it in our own lives. To learn more about Larry, Corners, and his community, visit cornersoutreach.org. I'm Jahan Sharif. Thanks for listening. <laughs>